Well, it's uh, good to be up here uh, at the, the Lord's pulpit and to share the Word of God with you. It's a great privilege. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12, just a very quick introduction here. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 22. Samuel's word to Israel after they asked for a king and a word that is good for us as well. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 22. Samuel said, The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God made Israel to be a people for himself. Notice the plural form, people. Though individuals were expected to repent from their sins and to trust in Israel's God and to bring sacrifices to walk with God, they were still identified as a people. And that's been true throughout all of biblical history. It has pleased God to make a people for himself. Still getting quite a bit of reverb here. Uh, when we come to the New Testament, the people of God are referred to by a number of metaphors. This was a series that we decided to preach through this summer as our senior pastor is gone uh, for a sabbatical this summer. And four of us are tag-teaming our way through some of the images and metaphors of the church. Pastor Josh, Josh preached a few weeks ago on the people of, or the family of God. And Dan preached last week on the flock of God, the sheep. And so through the summer, we'll be looking at different images. This one I'm about to introduce you to, we'll be looking at for three weeks. So this is so big and it's so uh, uh, plentiful in the New Testament, it's going to take us three Sundays to consider some aspects of this particular metaphor. Uh, I feel like saying it's God's favorite metaphor for the church. That might not be true. I don't know the mind of God there. He loves using images and metaphors of us. And the reason I say that is because the Apostle Paul certainly was his favorite because he mentions this metaphor 20 times in the chapter we're about to look at. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Do you know what that metaphor is, by the way? Let's hear it. What is the metaphor we're looking at today? body, the body, the body of Christ. This is helpful because all of us have bodies, and so we can all identify and relate with this image of the church. Well, why did Paul use this metaphor, this image? Well, the church of Corinth was in disarray. Heresies abounded. Of all the churches that Paul planted, this one had become the most divided with factions and dissensions and disagreements and people arguing, judging each other. Though the church at Corinth was attended by some who were extremely knowledgeable and brilliant and gifted, those same people had become terribly arrogant, proud over their giftedness. Some of the sign gifts that they possessed, they felt that everyone should have the same gifts that they had. And they judged those and lorded over those who did not. 
So the Apostle Paul takes his group of believers to task through chapters 12 and 14 through 14. But this morning, we're just going to limit ourselves to 14 verses in chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. Paul says, just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members have the, of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We're going to look at six different points as we consider uh, this body and uh, the first one is I call a total immersion. Uh, when I say total immersion, some of us think of baptism, especially if you're Baptist. Total immersion, baptism, and really the word baptiz- baptismo, it, it is talking about immersion. And here we're talking about a total immersion, but it's not about baptism. At least it's not about water baptism. It's about spirit baptism that when a person repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes them, he or she, into Jesus Christ, immerses us into Christ and into the body of Christ. This is unique because membership in most organizations or clubs is usually initiated by those who want to join. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that this work of grace was initiated by God even before we were born. Uh, also, we think about membership and, and uh, uh, we have to fill out applications. Uh, there's no heavenly body of directors voting on who gets, who gets to join. The Spirit of God immerses us into this body at salvation. So as much as we like to emphasize individualism in this country, uh, independence, uh, that's not what this metaphor allows us to do. Yes, individually, a person has to place their faith in Jesus Christ, but at that point, we become a, a part of a community. We become a part of this image called the body of Christ. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not just you and Jesus. And then, as Josh reminded us two weeks ago, it means that we're brothers and we're sisters with each other. Now, turn back to save your place here. Turn back to Ephesians 1, what uh, Josh read a few minutes ago, and the call to worship, because this is key to understanding this image. Ephesians chapter 1, we won't look at Paul's whole prayer, which Josh read, but we'll take it at just at verse 20. In the middle of Paul's prayer, he talks about that Christ was raised from the dead and then seated at the right hand of God. This was called the ascension. Jesus was, was uh, taken as uh, in his bodily form and taken really through what we might call all of the rules, uh, rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions. We would talk about both uh, those godly angels and the fallen angels. 
the entire spirit world. Jesus is lifted up and ascended above all of them, every name that will ever be named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And then God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. So really, before the ascension, we wouldn't even have ever thought about or talked about Jesus being the head of the church. The church is brand new. In the day of Pentecost, we have the birthday of the church. And now we see at Jesus' ascension, he becomes the head over his body. We might even say that we are the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus physically is at the right hand of God the Father, but he spiritually is is present The Holy Spirit is present. Father God is present among the people of God. And so we recognize that we are organically connected to Jesus as our head. Now, when we talk about Jesus being our head, we recognize that he calls the shots. Think of your body. Our body members allow our brain to tell them what to do. We have this whole nervous system And if you didn't have a brain as a part of your head, uh, we'd be dead. And none of the members of our body would be functioning. So in the same way, we are connected with the head who uh, guides us through his spirit to bring about the will of God on earth through the church. The body of Jesus consists of all believers, everyone, worldwide, It's this beautiful image of interconnectedness. Now, notice that Paul, as we return to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he he gives us two groupings of people who weren't particularly friends with each other. Uh, First, he mentions Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles. Uh, These two groups were at enmity with one another. Jewish people were taught, not by the Old Testament, by the way, but by rabbinical teaching, that they should avoid all contact with non-Jews. In fact, if a Jew was walking down the street and they saw a Gentile come in the opposite direction, they'd cross the street. They were taught that you'll become unclean if you touch shoulders. Certainly would never go into a Gentile's house. You'd become stained with sin. And when one people group is treated that way by another people group, what do they do in return? They despise them in return. In fact, we still have this terrible anti-Semitism throughout the world. People despise the Jewish people. And so here's this group that suddenly Paul says, Christ, your belief in Christ and being immersed in his body makes you brothers and sisters. You have become one in this body. Paul taught in Ephesians 2, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall. Now in case that didn't grab their attention, he mentions the second group, slaves and free men. Now, in first century the first century church, they didn't have church buildings like this. They met in homes. So they were folks who had larger homes. I'm sure that they would meet in. And uh, can you imagine walking into one of those homes to worship together and hearing the same couch 
the same chair was a slave owner sitting next to a slave. You say, that would never happen. It happened. Christ broke down those dividing walls, and suddenly folks are beginning to, to understand, this is my brother, this is my sister in Christ. Now, some of us are just kind of thinking historically, thinking back a couple thousand years. But think about perhaps ethnic people groups that you would have a difficult time sitting in, right next to in the pew. But do you know that in Christ, you'd become one? You've become one. We're part of the same body. There's no inequality. There's perfect equality at the foot of the cross. So this is, this is the beginning of this beautiful uh, imagery that tells us that it's by the grace of God that we've been immersed into Christ's body. Well, let's continue now back to chapter 12 and read verse 14. Paul says, The body does not consist of one member, but of many. Paul's introducing us to the idea of this unity, and I call this a beautiful unity. The parts of the body have different functions. They look very different, uh, and, and they're very diverse. Now, if you hear me say the word diverse or diversity, don't think about how that word has been sabotaged today because it's really a beautiful word. It's the idea of that it's, it's variety. There's variety in this body. My fingers have a different function. They look very different than my toes, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> But here's the thing that we're struggling with. Part of my sinful nature, left to myself, I only want to be with people who are just like me. Why? Because it's easy to get along with me. It's easy to get along with people who look like me, who walk like me, who talk like me, who have the same ethnic background that I do, the same socioeconomic background, and that's what we might call selfishness. We have the idea, and this is part of our sinfulness, is we think that we're really maybe the best, the best we're in the best country, we're, we're the best race. We, we just haven't made because we, we think we're better than other people. That's left to ourselves without the Spirit of God changing us and transforming us. Even sociology bears this out. They, they, they tell us this. They tell us that people have an affinity toward people like them. Most of our best friends, left to ourselves, without God working in us, are just like us. Because we get along. It's easy to get along with people who have the same values that we have and who look like us. And you don't have to argue about things that make us different. When I went to seminary at Covenant, I took some classes on church planting. And even there... Uh, they had what was called, uh, through a teaching that they provided for us, a homogeneous unit principle. And that ba basically bore out, if you want to plant a church, target a particular group of people, typically they ought to be like the pastor, and you find a, a sub subdivision, a suburb, people are moving in, and they're pretty much all thinking the same, looking the same, and that's, how to, that's where you plant a church. And that is how they, to make a church grow faster, because people are attracted to other people like them. That works, but it's not biblical. That's not biblical. We should create... And allow God to create churches that reflect 
his heart and the variety in which he has created people. The body of Christ is diverse. Our body should reflect diversity in age groupings, economic stratas, races, and we haven't done very well in this country. You're right. As you travel around the world, it's untrue when people say America is the only country that has this racial problem. Every country has a racial problem because this is part of our sinfulness. Well, I want to tell a little bit of a story that helps us to understand our own history. We have to understand history if we want to understand current events and what's happening. Richard Allen and his dear friend Absalom Jones were leaders of the black Methodist community in Philadelphia in 1793, and a yellow fever epidemic broke out. Many people, black and white, were dying. Hundreds more fled the city. And city officials asked Richard Allen and Absalom Jones if the black community could help as nurses to serve uh, to the, the suffering and to help bury the dead. And these men understood the inherent racism of that question. That is, ask the black folks to do the risky, dirty work for the whites. But they consented, partly out of compassion they had for dying people, but also to show the white community in one more way the moral and spiritual equality of black people. A little background of Richard Allen. He was born into slavery in Philadelphia in 1760. Converted at the age of 17, he began preaching first on his plantation and then at local Methodist churches who allowed him into his pulpit, into their pulpits. He preached whenever he had the chance. Quote, sometimes I would awake from my sleep preaching and praying, he later recalled. His owner, one of Allen's first converts, was so impressed with him that he allowed Allen to purchase his freedom. In 1781, Allen began traveling the Methodist preaching circuits in Delaware and surrounding states. Prominent Methodist leaders like Francis Asbury made sure that Allen had places to preach. And in 1786, the former slave returned to Philadelphia and joined a church called St. George's Methodist Church. His leadership at prayer services attracted dozens of blacks into the church, and with them came increased racial tension. Around that time, blacks made up about 10% of the Methodist church in the U.S. And though whites and blacks often worshiped together, there was no equality in those congregations. Segregated seating was typical. The area reserved for blacks was called the Negro Pew or the African Corner. Now, before... God had begun stirring and bringing blacks into the church. That church had no history of segregated seating. But then when the black community began, uh, black population began increasing in the church, they decided to segregate the blacks. They set up uh, chairs along the outer perimeter and they allowed the black people to sit in those chairs. Well, there was one event after another that was very, uh, they were treated very unequally and unfairly. 
And finally, during one service in 1787, a group of blacks sat in some new pews that, unbeknownst to them, had been reserved for whites. As the blacks knelt in prayer, a white trustee came over, grabbed Absalom Jones, and began pulling on him, saying, you must get up. You can't kneel here. And Jones asked him, could we just wait until the prayer is over? No, you must get up now, or I'll call for aid and force you out. But the group finished praying, and they got up and walked out. And the first African-American church was begun by Richard Allen. It became known as the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, still uh, very popular today. The body of Christ has not enjoyed the unity that Christ died to bring about. It is a it was a delight to have you praying, dear Brother Clifton, and have Diane as an integral part of our fellowship. Thank you. Then we continue on with Scripture in verse 15. Paul says, If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I call this section now a contented acceptance. We get into a lot of trouble when we start looking around and noticing what other people have or what they're like, and we begin comparing ourselves with each other. And the context begins with parts of the body. Can you imagine if your hand and your foot started comparing themselves with each other? Who would win? The hand would say, uh, the hand would say have you ever noticed all the really cool things I get to do? And the foot would say, this isn't fair. I have all this weight on me all day long. I, I, I feel pain. I feel hurt. Sometimes it's really hard to walk. And besides, I've got to wear those smelly socks all day. And I'm the one who's always stubbing my toes. No, our body parts don't compare themselves with, the, uh, with each other because they, they enjoy uh, the function that they have been created to perform. Now, what about the eye and ear? What if they begin arguing? The eyes are saying, I'm so sorry that you're not able to see the beautiful colors of that sunset over there. And the ears saying, well, at least I can hear the birds singing. Uh, no, body parts aren't comparing themselves, and nor are we. There should be a contented acceptance that we're part of this bigger body, and we're just this little bitty part, but all of us have a function. All of us are here for a purpose and for a reason. Avoid comparing yourself with others. You'll always find someone who looks better or does better or makes more money or has a nicer house or a nicer car or gifts that you don't have, you'll always feel worse about yourself. In fact, it's sinful because the 10th commandment says you shall not what? Covet. You shall not covet. 
Don't be looking at what someone else has or how, how God has wired someone else and somehow lose joy over that because envy will always steal your joy. May there be a contented acceptance as our own bodies have accepted how they have been created. Verse 18 says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. This is what I call a relinquished ownership. We don't even own our own bodies. God does. He's the creator. He created these bodies. He's the owner. Do you know he has actually ordained the day that you're going to pass into eternity? If you know Christ, he'll bring you home. If you don't, you will go to a dark, dark place away from the Lord. As I mentioned, Corinth had a number of folks who were practicing their spiritual gifts in a very prideful way, implying that anyone who's truly spiritual would have the same gifts they had. They were wrong. Because earlier in the chapter, if we go back even to verse 11, we learn that the Spirit... Let's just read the whole verse. Verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11. All these, he's talking about gifts of the Spirit. Earlier in the chapter, some of the gifts are listed. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's not as we will. As he wills. We aren't to seek particular gifts. We are to ask the Lord to manifest to us, to guide us to the use of those gifts so that Jesus Christ is glorified and the body is built up. Now, no one has all of the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus Christ certainly would have had all of them, but no one has ever received all of the gifts. Do you know why? Because we need each other, because we're a part of the body. Your hand can't do things that your foot can do. And there are gifts that he, the Lord has withheld from each of us so that we'll recognize that we need partnership with others. It might be a spouse. It might be someone else in this church who can function in ways that we can function. Emerson Barron has a lot of gifts, but the gift of administration is not one of them. <laughs> if he's ever on a committee with you, don't ever ask him to take notes. I knew I could call him out on that because he, he would say the same thing. And he would find something that I don't have, and he would bring me out into the open, too, wouldn't you? We've traveled many, many thousands of miles together, so we know know each other very, very well. Well, about 10 years ago, I was on the pastoral staff uh, as one of the pastors and elders here. And we were talking about spiritual gifts. And... uh, I ask each elder to go around and, and, and mention the primary gift. It's basically, we all have a primary gift. Some of us have a secondary gift. And, and, but there's, there's usually one thing that, that the Lord just is using through us. And I ask each man to go around and share what they thought was their primary gift. I don't mean to embarrass anyone, but to make my point, I'm going to go ahead and mention their names. Uh, Mark Maxwell, he mentioned he had the gift of leadership. Kendall Walton, the gift of administration. Jay Hotchkiss, the gift of hospitality. Tim Menke, the gift of discernment. Al Priest, the gift of faith. Mike Smith, the gift of administration. Myself, gift of pastor-teacher. 
Paul Martin, the gift of teaching, and Tom Flutterer, the gift of exhortation or encouragement. If any of you know these different men, you'd be shaking your head, yeah, 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 that's exactly right, because you've seen that gift manifested. Nearly all of those gifts are different. We had a couple administrators because us pastors, we didn't have the gift, did we, Al? So we needed, we needed, and talking to Al Fuller, who was also on the pastoral staff, we needed uh, gifts of administration surrounding us. The Lord also places us in each local assembly of believers as he desires. Yes, we pray about it, but he leads us to that place where our gifts are needed. Yes, we're glad you're here, but really the purpose of the Lord bringing you here is to be a part of what God's doing through this assembly of believers. We need your gifts. We want our gifts to be maximized for the glory of God. So we relinquish ownership. Do you know the church doesn't belong to anyone here? We're not here to somehow influence so everyone will do church the way we want it to be. None of the, the elders don't own the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Amen? Amen? Jesus is the head of the church. We relinquish ownership to what he's doing. This is his body. And we get to be a part of it. Verses 19 to 21. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I uh, just refer to this as embracing interdependence. Embracing interdependence. Uh, can you imagine if the fingers on your right hand decided that they didn't need the left hand to help them? Try tying your shoe without your, you know, your other uh, hand helping. How about if the kidney decided to go it alone and not work along with the bladder? We'd be in big trouble. There's an interdependence that all of the parts of our body work together. This is the reason that this metaphor is chosen by the Holy Spirit to help us to see the interdependence. Paul reminds the Corinthians again, the body is made up of many members, but it's one body. One author writes this. He says the early church was built on small groups of people who came together to support one another in a whole new way of life. These communities were visible evidence of an alternative to the status quo of their culture. See, what we're talking about here is supernatural. It, this isn't true out there in our culture. You won't see companies work this way. You won't see families who don't know Christ work this way. This is only true of the body of Christ. He says, today we need small bands of people who take the gospel at face value, who realize what God is doing in our time and who are living proof of being in the world but not of the world. These communities shall be small enough for intimacy, kindred enough for acceptance, and gentle enough for criticism. Gathered in the name of Jesus, the community empowers us to incarnate in our lives what we believe in our hearts and proclaim with our lips. Now, moving ahead to verse 22, our final point. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. 
which are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Uh, I call this a new evaluation, a new way of valuing others. How do we value others? There's a few different ways to interpret these verses. We start with the human body. All of us have members that are external. You all know that I have hands. You know I have a head and a face, and you see different body parts, but we all have external, and we have internal body parts that uh, aren't out there. You, don't, you know I have a heart, but you don't see it, and a brain, supposedly, uh, and liver and kidneys and all the inner organs, and they don't really make themselves known in terms of being seen but if you don't take care of those inner internal organs, they will let you know that there's trouble, right? And we have to head to the doctor or to the hospital or what have you. Likewise, there are gifts in the body. In fact, Peter, uh, in 1 Peter 4, talks about there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. We all know what the speaking gifts are. When you sit under the, someone who's using a speaking gift in preaching or teaching, or people use words like the gift of encouragement or exhortation. They use words to build others up. We all know what those gifts are. But the serving gifts are kind of behind the scenes. And sometimes we don't notice those, but they are just as needed in the body of Christ. Some of you would say, there's no way I could ever get up front and give my testimony or teach a devotional. But man, are there important things that you do behind the scenes. And the body of Christ functions when all of us are using our gift. Another way of interpreting the passage is to consider that Paul speaks of the weaker members as those that receive less honor. The word weak sometimes can be translated sick. We all go through seasons when we're weaker than we want to be mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And when I'm weakest is when I need you to be strong for me. When, those are, when folks are sick, they need you to pray for them, not to judge them or cast them out because they're not functioning like you think they should function. We are equally valuable. Turn a couple of pages back to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. We are equally valuable. Paul says to the church, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What makes this so valuable? By God's own grace and mercy, not because of our good works, not because even of our potential of what God saw that we would be or could be, out of God's own grace, he chose you and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to actually die a death that our sins deserve and he lived the life that none of us will ever live. This is what Jesus did for us. And this, according to the scripture here, says that this has made us so valuable because we were bought with a price. Peter says, it wasn't gold or silver that you were uh, redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your own forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, bought with a price. 
that makes us, we have that same equal value in one another's sight. Jesus didn't only die for us, he was raised from the dead for us. And he has promised us that we would have eternal life forever in him. Turn back to Acts chapter 9. I, I noticed this a few years back, and it's just astounding. You all know the story that the Apostle Paul started out, uh, he had the name Saul, and he was a terrible persecutor of the church. He had thrown uh, Christians into prison. He was responsible for, he had the blood of Christians on his hands, and he's on his way to, D to Damascus in Syria to, to imprison a bunch of Christians there. And he was just looking to ravage the church. That's the Greek word that's used here uh, of, of, of Saul. And then he encounters Jesus Christ, not just the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ who appears to Saul. And, he, and, and Saul sees the light from heaven, verse 3, verse 4, falling to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he may have, first of all, he's like, well, who's this voice? Who is this? He knew it was a God thing. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The first thing Saul may have thought was, no, I've persecuted Christians. I've never persecuted you. I've never met you. As far as you know, Saul never had met Jesus. Jesus said, you're persecuting me. I don't know who you are. I don't know. I know. No, Jesus said, He's saying, in effect, you persecute my body and you're persecuting me. You raise a hand against my people, you're raising against me. Jesus says, you, you kick, this, you kick uh, this stomach and the head feels it. And we can bear that out. You slam your finger with a hammer as hard as you can, your whole body's going to hurt, isn't it? Some of you know how much that hurts. Your whole body is, is feeling it. What intimacy Jesus has with his body. He says, when someone makes you suffer, I suffer with you. Whether we're talking physical persecution, we're talking emotional pain, Jesus grieves with us. That's how intimate he is with us. He's connected with us. He's not separate from us. We're his body. He's, he's our head. It grabbed Paul's attention, and within days he is saved. The theologian Augustine said, It was the head in heaven crying out on behalf of the members who were still on earth. Now, the only valuable people on earth are not believers who've been redeemed by the blood, putting faith in the blood of Christ. All of us are valuable. What makes us valuable? The Bible says that we are created in the image of, with the image of God. Some have, have helped us understand that. God has emotions, and we've been made with emotions. God has intellect. We have been given an intellect. God is able to make choices. He has a will. We've been given that ability to make choices. We have a will. We're made in the image of God. Every person, including those in the womb, are image bearers of God. Everyone, everyone, we have life from God and we bear his image. That's why we care deeply for the unborn. 
one of the great apologists in the 20th century, he's in heaven now, was Francis Schaeffer. Great apologist, especially in the 1970s, he helped to found Covenant Seminary here. Uh, he pastored a, 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 one of the Presbyterian churches, helped to start it, I believe. He wrote this almost 50 years ago. He says, in the flood of the loss of humanness in our age, he says that's 50 years ago. So imagine our age today. In the flood of the loss of humanness in our age, including the flow from abortion on demand to infanticide and on to euthanasia, the only thing that can stem this tide is the certainty of the absolute uniqueness and value of people. And the only thing that gives us that is, that is the knowledge that people are made in the image of God. We have no other final protection. And the only way we know that people are made in the image of God is through the Bible and the incarnation of Christ, which we know from the Bible. If people are not made in the image of God, the pessimistic, realistic humanist is right. The human race is an abnormal wart on the smooth face of a silent and meaningless universe. Friends, this is why, this is why a Russian army is killing innocent people in the Ukraine. This is why the Burmese army is killing innocent civilians in Burma. They have no understanding and comprehension that people are made in the image of God. And so people don't have value or purpose. In this setting, abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, including the killing of mentally deranged criminals, the severely handicapped, or the elderly who are an economic burden, are completely logical. Without the Bible and without the revelation in Christ, which is only told us in the Bible, there is nothing to stand between us and our children and the eventual acceptance of the monstrous inhumanities of the age. That man was very prophetic, wasn't he? Well, we're going to, we're going to celebrate the Lord's death for us and partaking of what we call the Lord's Supper or Communion. But before we do so, I want to just a couple minutes of teaching about that, also from 1 Corinthians. And I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just a chapter back from what we've been looking at. The church in Corinth did not place a lot of value on one another. Let's look at verse 17. Paul says in the following, chapter 11, verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now, the church practiced something scholars tell us was called the love feast. We call it a potluck. We enjoy eating together. This is a beautiful, really, picture that God has gives us in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. We feast, we share a feast together. We eat together. They had this, people brought food in Corinth. Corinth was one of the wealthier cities in the entire Roman world. 
and they were very wealthy people, and I'm sure they loved their cuts of meat. And they were slaves. They were the poor people who couldn't afford bringing meat. And so the wealthy people kind of made a deal. Let's meet early. You bring your cut of meat, I'll bring mine, and we will have a feast together. The others will come, and they'll bring their vegetables from their garden, whatever. Can you imagine? That's what they were doing. They'd have their love feast, they'd have a little teaching, then they'd celebrate the Lord's Supper together. They actually dared to share the Lord's Supper after pulling off that garbage. Can you imagine this beautiful picture of unity right after you left the poor people, you humiliated the poor people? Look what Paul says in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat? In other words, eat your meat in your own house. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? No. These are very, very abrupt, harsh, brutal judgment of Paul on what was going on in Corinth. Don't call out the Lord's Supper, he says. You can, go through, you can go through the motions. That's not, that's not the Lord's body. That's not even memorial. It's not even standing for his body. He has no part in what you're doing there. He says it's better if you don't even gather together. Well, we're about to take this supper. And Paul tells us that before we do so, we should be careful about a few things. Let's notice what he tells us. Chapter 11, verse 23. I received from the Lord and what I also delivered to you, that Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, taking, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So even before we come here on Sundays, we should evaluate our lives. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Am I even a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? So that's certainly, if you're here this morning and you've, uh, we're so glad you're here, but if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not a follower of Jesus, then uh, this would be an unworthy to take this because you'd be hypocritical to say that you're a part of the body and blood of, and it was shed for you if you don't believe that. So better to remain in your seat in just a few moments. But there's other unworthy manners. One is, this is ritual. We, I'm glad we do this every Sunday, but if, if you're not careful, it can be a ritual. I, I, just, I guess now it's time to go up front and have my, my little drink and a little piece of bread. Uh, no, that's ritual. Uh, we are thinking about what we're doing. This, this, this is, is standing for, representing uh, th- that precious thing that was shed for us so that we could know God. If you're unrepentant, if there's sin in your life you refuse to confess, 
or if there's sin against someone here, and you've sinned against them and, and, and not made it right with them. Scripture says, don't come forward. Make it right with your brother and sister. So this is, this is very, the, the Lord is very uh, serious about this. So uh, as, as, as we uh, bow our heads and prepare our hearts as the musicians come forward to play, uh, we're going to take uh, just a moment or two to reflect. So uh, just as we get ready to do that, I want to let you all know that uh, there are uh, elements in both uh, balconies. You're able to go uh, there to the table and receive the elements. You can either take it there at the table or you can take it back to your seat and reflect longer. Same with that up here. If you want a prepackaged kit, there are some in the foyer. If, you're, uh, if it's difficult for you to make your way up here, raise your hand and Clifton will come around with the elements and serve you. But uh, as, as the musicians come forward, this bow our heads and I'd like to give you a moment or two of silent reflection and confession if that need be meditation on the body and blood of Jesus. Lord, your grace, your grace is astounding. Lord, there are no words that we can even put together to express our gratitude. Father God, for sending your son, sinless sacrifice for our sins so that we could come to know you and that we could know our sins are forgiven and that we can know that we have become your children through faith. And thank you, Lord, for this opportunity once again to be reminded of your grace and the salvation that was provided for us in Jesus, through Jesus. And so, Lord, we come not because we deserve to, but by your precious grace and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name.